Hey guys, welcome to the Liberty Roundtable. How are you doing tonight, Sean? Doing good. We got a hot one tonight. It's uh, we got. It's going to look like a uh, handsome bearded guy contest, but it's actually going to be a conversation about uh, criminal justice reform. Sorry, I plucked that one random hair you get after thirty. So we are going to be talking about criminal justice reform, the war on drugs, qualified immunity. We're going to try to hit all the good spots tonight. And if not, we will have these guys on again. We are waiting on Kevin. We have had more than one uh, tech issue. It's been driving us nuts. But hopefully he will pop on any minute and get to hang out with us. So we have tonight David Traxel of Anti-Establishment anti-establishment media and Peter Quinones and he is the history of a free man beyond the wall podcast and the managing editor of libertarianinstitute.org which is super cool how are you guys doing tonight doing awesome thanks for having me on doing great thank you So let's let's get started, and then we'll bring uh, we'll bring uh, Kevin in. Uh, I, as we tie this up, there's a lot of things that I think that we'll find some agreement on uh, when it comes to uh, reforms in the justice system. What I wanted to do is maybe throw out some of the more provocative stuff, um, you know, and, and just ask the question, you know. Why don't we do some of these these things that we're going to talk about? Um, you know, if if we were to talk about fifty years of a war on drugs, like wh where's that gotten us? And and where is the uh, political will uh, to say, hey, look, this isn't working? And you know, feel free to you know to dive into all of the nuances. You know, whether it's qualified immunity, civil asset forfeiture, all the really asinine things. Uh, that, that, that make things problematic. But I think it all, in my opinion, kind of starts from the failed war on drugs and, you know, the, the police state. But then we see, you know, uh, slogans that don't work, like defund the police. I think we'd all like to see some restructuring happen. Uh, but a slogan like that just kind of fell on deaf ears and uh, freaked people out more than it did uh, getting people on board with talking about real reforms. So with that said, like, we're... Uh, we're where, Peter, you're working on a documentary yourself, uh, so this is not a topic that you're um, unfamiliar with. Like, like, where do you see this thing, uh, you know, falling apart? And is there any hope of ever reforming this system? Yeah, but it's going to take good strategy. You, one of the things that I've talked about in the past is if you're going to if you're going to take the tack that that you want to see the police, their power scaled down, maybe the place to start is by say, by going, oh, how can we make it safer for police? Because in that way, then conservatives, you know, are like, oh, okay, how do we do that? And we, well, you talk about scaling back their responsibilities and taking away more power from them, taking away traffic stops. How about, you know, having Best Buy Boulevard instead of whatever Boulevard and Best Buy is in charge of whatever the laws are on there. And one thing I figured out was the more you scale back the police and what responsibility they have, the closer you get to like minarchy anarchy, because, okay, so if police aren't out patrolling the streets anymore, I mean, we know they, they show up less than 5% of the time to stop a crime anyway, but people are going to start advocating for gun laws to be repealed so that people are going to need to protect themselves now because the police aren't there to protect them, even though we know that's bullcrap. Um, once you do that, well, you're, that's one, one step closer. And, but I think really what you, what we need to do is we need to address the fact that most people desire the police. And when there's a desire for something, the market provides and you know there hasn't always been police Poli policing the 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 idea of a local police officer is about late 1700s early 1800s london and people like they brought the idea over here and they've set it up and right wingers love the, the idea of the police for whatever i mean just because it it's been ingrained into them left wingers love the police now because who's going to enforce all these covid laws and 
believe it or not, the black community loves the police because they were the ones who lobbied to have the war on drugs started. So you have a lot of people to convince, but I think really the only way to do it is to, yeah, I mean, the war on drugs has to be repealed. And anytime I talk about it to anybody, the first thing I bring up is prohibition. I bring up, you know, the Volstead Act. It's like, how did that work out? Well, I mean, they got rid of it after, what, 12 years? This has been going on for 50. So come on. Come on. Um, but the, uh, yeah, your small town in Iowa doesn't have a cop. It doesn't have a cop. And it's fine. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, just reading the comments over here. But but really, I mean, the only way that I see to scale back the police is, I mean, you got to convince people that the war on drugs needs needs to be stopped. And you have to go at policing and scale down what they do. And the really the easiest way to do that is to start privatizing certain things. And at this point in time, I would say two years ago, I would think talking about privatizing roads, uh, certain highways would be probably not accepted. But I think in the last two, in the last two years, people are looking for answers that are outside of the box. And I think that includes everybody. I mean, even even the right has become red pilled on the cops because they see that the cops are the ones enforcing the lockdowns. And you see, all you have to do is go on Twitter and you see some of these right-wing personalities talking about, I don't know that I can trust the cops anymore. And you're just like, people need to be presenting you know, viable alternatives now. So that's what I, I try to do. You know, so. good, good point. So, so in terms of viable options, David, how would you think uh, privatizing the police uh, would work out? Is that a viable option? Uh, a and in, in, you know, can we get there? Is there is there, uh, is there an appetite for privatization? And uh, and secondly, how would that look to you? Do you think that would be a solution to some of these problems? Yeah, I think I think the privatization is certainly. I think it's a it's a it's a viable option. I th I do think that it's a long march to get there. I don't think that that's anything that could happen like instantaneously. And obviously there's still plenty of issues about who becomes in charge. Is it, is it just a democratic process for a community to choose, you know, and then like, I just, there's a lot of issues to work through uh, to ensure that it just doesn't become another form of voted in tyranny or whatever, where 51% want this group of people being police. The other people want this group because it's private, but who is in charge of determining who is ruling over that. I think at the end of the day, though, it really it comes down to understanding like that it all rolls downhill in terms of laws, the 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 Justice Department in general and like in terms of the justice system as well as police. Like, it's one big system. Right. And I think in, in my mind, one of the biggest issues that we have is people having a really misunderstanding of like what true justice is when it like as it pertains to criminals and like a lot of people really think that serving justice to like when when a person is harmed that we have this misconception that justice is served by that person that perpetrated that harm going to jail when really that's never been understood what justice is really justice means the person is made whole so restitution is really more in alignment with what justice is the problem is that our form of justice and how that relates to police, how it relates to the justice system, the courts, all of it is more about upholding the enforcement of the state. It's more about the state punishing people for doing wrong so that they can maintain some sort of control over the populace. It's to punish people so they can ma maintain control versus actually giving justice to victims. It's two so totally separate issues. And what we're seeing, like exactly that playing out, like in the Rittenhouse case right now, where it's it's when you have the, the system designed the way that it is, like for so long, a lot of people on the right have been very in favor of strong courts, strong punishments, strong police, so on and so forth. But we're seeing that get played out now where when you give the state that power, well, the state may not always be on your side, as we're seeing in this Rittenhouse case, where we're seeing a much, much bigger shift than what a lot of people thought, where, I mean, really, the, the, the very right to self-defense is on trial in this. And so I really think it comes down to not just talking about police, but also really having the conversation. I, I think police is like the, the, the bottom of the issue. 
it really is about the laws and the court systems and how all of that plays out. I think really um, focusing on the issues of real justice and, and what that means versus state punishment to maintain some sort of an orderly society. I think that's the conversation. Thanks, David. No, that's, that's good. I want to kick this over to Kevin and ask Kevin, in a red state, with the things that Peter and David are talking about, limiting the scope uh, of uh, responsibilities of, of police, uh, potentially privatizing, uh, and, and, and then attacking uh, the justice system uh, from a legal perspective and making sure that we have laws that, uh, you know, that recognize the rights of the, of, of the individuals and maybe just uh, frame things differently. How does this play in a red state where, you know, tough on crime is, is uh, you know, kind of a virtue? What is your take? So thank you. And uh, I appreciate being on the panel tonight and uh, hearing everyone's different perspectives on this very important topic. And certainly uh, my 21 years in corrections, uh, if anything, I learned a lot more there than I did about, uh, you know, sort of life in my uh, two years in the state capitol here in Connecticut. As a state rep, I learned a lot more about uh, criminals by the people in suits and ties and dresses in the capitol here in Connecticut but I, I mean that in sincerity. I really had learned a lot through the lawmaking process of sort of how corrupt it is without really including all the people in the process all the time. And we kind of saw that through this, this COVID lockdown situation where laws are being made and certainly fast tracking some of those laws has had adverse effects on communities. You know, you talk about privatizing. Privatizing is an interesting conversation. In corrections, for example, here in Connecticut, Back probably in the early 90s, mid 90s, John Rowland, I think, was the uh, governor. We uh, we talked about privatizing um, across the country. Privatizing has, has been somewhat of a failed project. And what I mean by that in the correction center, uh, and it is tied to law enforcement because I think they're all sort of in the penal system and, and work together. Really created a, a, a less than qualified uh, response to the needs of, of transitioning uh, folks back to the community. I have a lot, I, I'm very fortunate in my career, I, 13 or so years, I actually helped transfer or transition folks from the, uh, the criminal justice setting of prison into the community. I took my job very serious. And part of that job was sometimes handcuffing folks that were violated to bring them back to prison. But I, I really prided in the fact of trying to create opportunities to, to keep people out of jail. You know, the one thing I'll agree with Peter on, and, and, and one of the, the points that he made was, you know, and I, I kind of, I'll, I don't want to lean into the red versus the blue and the, all that. I, I know that's part of the conversation, but I really do think society in itself, we've reached a point where we've had enough of, 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 the, of, the, uh, of the corruption in, in so many different levels of politics, the court system. Listen, if anyone sits here and says that there's not racism in the world, we're, we're disingenuous. We all get it. If anyone sits here and says that we have a perfect system, we're, we'd be telling uh, an untruth, uh, you know, in that situation. How we can fix it, quite honestly, in my opinion, is these very conversations. You know, I, I, uh, I have the fortune on my show to in, 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 interview a lot of folks uh, on the Kevin Allen platform. And uh, one of the folks I talked to was George Floyd's uncle, uh, Selwyn Jones. And, uh, you know, I think his perspective on this conversation uh, is one that I can, and you know, George, uh, George Floyd's uncle and I, Selwyn, we've become quite friendly. Uh, we actually agree about law enforcement. We want police officers in the, in the communities, but we want community policing. I'm a big, big proponent of community policing. And one of the things I'll say is if you go into a privatized situation, you don't have that self-invested person that, that's walking the streets, coaching the students or kids at, at, at school and sporting event, or seeing them in the community because they hopefully are living there. Uh, I think we need to get back to, and I hate to be a little nostalgic, but, you know, Mayberry, as much as it maybe had problems, it was a little bit simpler. And you had the one sheriff and uh, the one sort of deputy. Uh, and I'm not quite uh, saying we need to get to that kind of, uh, you know, sort of uh, sophomoric approach. But my point is we need to get back to the basics. And, you know, criminal justice can be fixed, but it takes communities involvement. And we got to stop ignoring and, and start listening to the voices in these communities. Well, thanks for uh, that level of experience, uh, Kevin. I forgot when I had read about you that you had that experience in uh, criminal justice. So we're going to move on. Give me just a second here. Um, I wanted to bring something up. I live here in Austin, and we seem to be the center for a lot of these 
virtuous, crazy changes. Um, we defunded our police basically here to a point now that a man here, uh, let me look at his name, Andrews. Last name is Andrews, but he owns Petticoat Fair here in Austin. They've been around forever. It's a family-owned business. And sorry, I've got a child walking in. I knew this happened. Um, he was told after he called the police that they would not come out. His place has been robbed three times. Um, the final time, the window was shot out 30 minutes before he was supposed to be into work or his daughter. Uh, the police told him, collect your own evidence. But then he said, hey, won't that not be admissible in court? And they said, well, yeah, but this is COVID protocol. Um, what do you think is a better solution for defunding the police or do you think that they need better training do you think they need training in mental health uh what are y'all's takes on that why don't we go with peter this time i mean i think it's a bureaucracy anything that you would do right now would really just be a band-aid um i have a friend of mine who was a police officer also a soldier um he just wrote a book called fuck bureaucracy and he's we're, I'm going to release an episode with him this week, and he just basically explains in t in few episodes we've done together how you can talk about taking it, you know, taking away certain powers and everything, but bureaucracy feeds upon bureaucracy, and they're just going to you take away a power here, they're going to find a way to have more power somewhere else, and yeah, you know, I really want to get down to the point where police. All you're worried about is local police. I think that really one of the the main um, solutions to anything is localization, is getting thing down to the getting things down to as small as possible. Um, there's I forget how many counties there are in this country, but it's not a lot. I mean, when you really look at it, it's not a lot. And if they just handled law enforcement and then you just dealt with the big, it, you took things to the state when it came to big things. And the way that's going to start is local government and local police are going to have to look at the feds and go, you're not allowed in here anymore. I'm sorry. We're not going to put up with it anymore. ATF. ATF, DEA, they cannot operate in this country without the help of local law enforcement. DEA does not have the funding to bust every pot dispensary in Los Angeles County right now once a year. They are they don't have the funding to do so much. And if local police just said, nope, we're not helping you enforce these laws anymore, I think that would be a big Way. I mean, and it's very much what the John Birch Society was talking about for decades. They hated the ATF, they hated the FBI, they hated the feds, and but they were considered to be bootlickers because they were like, the local sheriff should be protecting us from these people. The local sheriff should not be allowing the feds in. And if the local sheriff, which according to the Constitution is probably the most powerful office in the land, if they took back what they were, if they took back the power that they have, Man, it would be a huge start to ending a lot of these police problems. Now, I live in a town of 26,000. I used to live in Atlanta, which the Atlanta is 6 million, like, you know, in the whole in the whole area. Um, this would be a, a tough thing to do in cities, but maybe we have to, you know, start doing Petri dishes in towns of 2,000, 3,000, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000, 25,000 and seeing how that works. Um, to me, I'm like, let's let the people in the cities eat themselves. I'm sorry. I'm just at that point. <laughs> I think people should get the hell out of cities. Um, but I, I think it really starts locally. I think so much of so many of the problems that we experience with this government in this country could be solved if the local governments just decided we're not enforcing the federal laws anymore. Come and get us and see what happens. Thanks, Peter. Uh, David, what are your thoughts? Mental health focus? Where are you going with this? Yeah, I mean, in terms of like, in terms of defund the police, I mean, I do think that at the end of the day, if you look at like FBI crime stats, the overwhelming majority of arrests and things that police do, like the vast, vast majority are not violent crimes. I mean, that's, that's just a fact. I don't have the exact percentages. I've looked them up over the last couple of years and it's the vast majority. It's 
you know, a lot of petty things that they're just generally like, I don't want to say wasting their time, but you can make an argument, certainly from a libertarian perspective, that they're just wasting their time. Um, And so I think that simply a reduction of scope and what a police officer is supposed to be doing in terms of specifically violent crimes and specifically things that are very much directly harming other individuals, that is going to reduce overall the amount of funding that they need. A big part of, you know, telling the ATF and the FBI to, to fuck off is not needing their funding. That's the problem is that they need the federal funding uh, in order to, you know, run their big, robust, you know, massive police force. Um, and so, and, and it just all, like Peter was saying, it's all tied to the bureaucracy of it all. Um, the government, we all know, is incentivized to always need to spend more money. And so until they have a really firm grasp of reduction of scope of what it is we're going to do, like they're going to be beholden to the federal government to uphold that. Just in terms of like the, the money that they get to enforce drug laws. If they all of a sudden said we're not going to enforce drug laws, then that's a huge chunk of their revenue that goes missing. So they need to really rein in their focus so that they can cut their budget. And that's just a very difficult thing for any uh, government agency to do. But it's an interesting point regarding the, the, the sheriff. I mean, realistically, I think that that's the move that we need to get back to is really do, starting to do away with local police departments and just stick with sheriff departments. It's, it's the elected official that's, that's running that. So at least there is that process of elections to hold them accountable as a county sheriff. And so unlike on like appointed police chiefs and things like that, there's a much higher level of accountability um, to, to the people that live there to, and if they were the main law enforcement department of that area and there was no, you know, local areas and they just covered their County and with enough deputies to cover the cities and things like that in the towns, then you have a much more accountable police force just from that alone. Um, and so I think that's another move that, pushing to, to move in that direction would be really, really healthy to where at least there's some measure of voting accountability for those sheriffs. Kevin, what are your thoughts? You have a unique perspective. So thank you again. And, uh, appreciate the panel's comments. Uh, you know, uh, I want to say that I'm, I'm not a def- defund the police guy, you know, and I, I want to be very clear that, uh, as much as I think some, some problems need to be fixed within, uh, many different agencies, I think law enforcement professionals, across this country, um, you know, uh, 800, I figured exactly the number on those things. And I think, uh, you know, the millions of contacts per year they have, a lot of them are really trivial. A lot of them, I agree, you know, uh, what Dave said, as far as, you know, are they necessary? Well, I think some of those contacts are those necessary contacts where they're almost, we, we hear a lot about uh, reform in law enforcement and social worker, you know, be, social workers being implemented. Um, you know, police officers are social workers. They are currently. And I'm not saying that they should be doing that job. Uh, I know what their job is. I clearly defend their job each and every day. Uh, I, I, I also think that, uh, you know, one of the points that Pete made is a very valid point as a former uh, first selectman. So in Connecticut, like a mayor, first selectman, that uh, another role that I had for two terms. Um, we have constable powers and it's underutilized. And Peter, you're exactly spot on. Our constitution, our founders in this country, they gave the local government the, the strongest authority. And we have often, uh, we often forget about that. And I, I brought it up when I was in office. I, I wanted to bring constables into our, our parks and recs events and, and for not more than traffic control and just moving traffic along safely rather than paying the bill for uh, a state police officer at an event, I could have done it uh, economically. Um, and it wasn't really more, it wasn't about the criminal, you know, chasing criminals around. It was more about just presence and during those types of public events. But I do agree. I think it's time for us locally to look at what we can do. You know, in some parts of Texas, in fact, I'm speaking with the folks uh, down there. Maybe you guys heard of Sam, Sam Hall, who's uh, down in Texas. Uh, he's doing some, some great work. He's part of a group of patriots that are actually down there as a militia group that are working directly under the authority of a sheriff. So I think, you know, Pete was kind of referring, this is that local sort of groundwork that I think takes place. And we're going to see more of that. I, I don't want to see uh, cities not have cops. I, I, I loved going to New York City. I wouldn't go there now. I wouldn't stand next to a rail, you know, or, 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 or um, a subway. Uh, there's too much mental health. And, and you, put, you touched on it very, very appropriately. Mental health can be tied back to all of these things. And I would really worry about um, 
crippling the ability to protect our citizens until we really address the mental health issues. I think, you know, one of the biggest funding uh, snafus, and I know someone commented as well, I think it might have been David or Peter, in regards to the funding from the DOJ. And, you know, that money that comes in from the DOJ is exactly going to be used the way they give you a prescription to use it. You don't have a choice in it. If, if it's going to be used for DWIs, it's going to be used for that. It's going to be used for, you know, uh, you know, sex crimes. It's going to be used that way. And they want their stats back, right? This is all about statistics being built. And I'm not, I'm not again, I'm, I'm pro-police officer. I just know that when you accept that money, uh, you definitely have some criteria to it. One of the biggest problems we have now is under the... Uh, uh, under this, the, the COVID funding, there's lots and lots of money being thrown around to law enforcement agencies, but it's untitled. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's now going to give the responsibility to the, the local authority to use that money in a certain way. Unfortunately, uh, it looks like they're repurposing money that was dedicated towards, uh, re, you know, keeping law enforcement properly funded and, and supplied with the equipment they need to be safe. Uh, and it's being utilized for other purposes. I think we do have to get back to local. I, I definitely agree. Uh, Peter and, and I would agree on this. I think uh, I think the local authority is the strongest authority. And if we can do that in this country, one state at a time, and maybe it's Texas. I don't know who's going to do it first, who's going to take the lead. But we need to start doing it because uh, we can't rely on our, our Washington government anymore. They, they have definitely uh, they're off the rails. I got I got a question for you. And yeah, something that I hear a lot is that we need to address that the system itself is a product of uh, systemic racism and that we need to address that issue. And then the response to that is that, oh, it's a few bad apples. And uh, myself, I, I, you know, somebody that considers myself an individualist, I like to, you know, deal with individuals. I have a hard time understanding how I can fix um you know, assign blame to all police officers for the for the actions of a few. But that said, I also recognize that we do have policies that that good people are asked to enforce that can put them at odds. And I don't have the answers. Some of you, uh, you know, have studied this issue a lot better. Like for the people that are listening, that are that are looking at the police departments, that number one problem is systemic racism. A, is that a problem? And B, is there a solution? I, I think the biggest problem is people being poor. I mean, seriously, it doesn't matter if you're black or white. If you're white, if you're black or white and you're poor, you're going to jail. You're good luck with a public defender. I mean, you may run into a public defender like my fiance was who actually used the constitution to um, get people off on charges. But most of most public defenders are just dealing with so many people. They're just, it's a revolving door. Um, but then you look and you see, well, I mean, who was the last rich person you saw go to, go to jail? I mean, it's seriously, if you're rich, you can buy, buy your way out of um, crimes. So I think it's a wealth problem, and maybe that goes back to the Federal Reserve. I mean, <laughs> people were making a lot of people were making a lot of money um, um, and saving a lot of wealth up until about 1970. I mean, it, even before the the, the was it the Great Society of 1965 destroyed the black family, which was just a plan that they had. I mean, in the 1950s, the average black family in Detroit had one income earner owned a car, owned a house. And they had two or three kids and they were working at Ford or one of the companies. Everything fell apart. You also had people who had worked for companies who had um, pension plans and everything. Then they destroyed the currency. It took us completely off the gold standard in 70 and 71 and also gave us the war on drugs right at the same time. And that's when the prison industrial complex came into existence. And that's what we see, see ever since. It's just... You know, I heard at one point that you could, it, they were getting $55,000 a year for every inmate in a California penitentiary. And I'm like, there's no way they're spending $55,000 a year on every inmate. Um, all the land's already been paid for. The structure was already paid for. These aren't private prisons. Um, and private prison is a misnomer anyway. Where that, where's that money going? I can jump in. I can jump in yeah, here Kevin, and off yeah, here Kevin, where it's yeah. going. 
Because it's certainly going into the operation of the business, right? So, I mean, California is one of the largest, if not the largest, correctional penal systems in the in the country, and they have a uh, uh, you know more probably prisoners than some small states like Rhode Island for crying out loud. They might even have more uh, incarcerated. I do think that the operation is is uh, cost of, uh, very costly to the taxpayer. In fact. Uh, as a retiree and beneficiary here in Connecticut, I stood up for reform and our pension systems and such like that, which is not the conversation. But the point is, look, at the end of the day, it costs. There's a cost of doing business, and if you're going to incarcerate people, you can't just let them kind of run amok. You're going to have to have some some sort of supervision in there. And I, I do think it's overgrown. But I can itself. I can live I can live on. I've set up my life to be able to live on twenty five or thirty thousand dollars a year. Fifty five thousand dollars a year. I'm yep. take, I'm going on vacation every month. Where is that money going? A full, me- a full 24 medical, Peter, uh, full uh, services there. You also have full supervision 24-7. You I'm have administrators. I mean, it's, it's listen, we, we could probably flesh out, and I would agree, we could probably go into every penal system across the country, corrections, and we could probably flesh out millions of dollars in cost savings that we it's being wasted each and every day. But at the end of the day, who's going to operate? If you're going to put these people in these 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 structures – you're going to need a staff to be there. So, I, I mean, I don't know how you fix it unless you fix the other end, which is let's how do we avoid them going to prison? You know, yeah, well, I mean, that really makes sense, case. obviously. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It, D- David, we, we had a question that came in uh, from the chat uh, asking about uh, crack cocaine versus yeah. uh, versus uh, powder cocaine. And uh, when we when we look at uh, the laws uh, for sentencing, which was, you know, 100 to one ratio different. Right. Uh, was that targeting the black community? Or was that targeting the poor community? What was that targeting? Well, you know, I, th- I think like tying that into the original question of sy- like systemic racism, um, you know, I think we need to, again, look at the different layers of the system. You have the cops, you have the, the courts, you have the, the justice system in full. And then you have like the, the people that are passing the laws in the first place. And I really like, I think the, the, the least racist part of the system outside of individual bad actors is probably the cops. Like I would say they're the least racist part of this whole thing. And it's more the system above them that's guiding them into what to do. I would, I would bet that most cops on the street are doing, they're, they're going after the things they're being told to focus on. And they're, they're, they're going after things that are the easy bus, you know, and like, just like that, like with the uh, crack versus cocaine, obviously there was a massive sentencing disparity. You know, I don't know how many white people were using crack back in the day, um, but certainly it was, uh, it was a major epidemic in the black community. And, you know, at the end of the day though, there's a lot of things that, that there were a lot of black people that were pushing for more enforcement for that as well, because there was a lot of it was their community being affected and there were a lot of people who wanted that off the streets and they and they wanted that so again like i i really think that at the end of the day the most the racism always is going to in my mind stem from the top it's the people who are the elites the wealthy so on and so forth that are um using that to they're using the laws to their advantage for both targeting race as well as poor people um, you know, when we look at the, the, the history of our country, yes, most of the things that are happening right now are, are almost all targeting the just poverty in general, and it's affecting anybody in that realm. But I think to be like truthful, we have to also acknowledge the, the real things that have happened, like redlining and a lot of other things that have led to the, the reasons why so many black people happen to be in that category of poor people. Right. There's a disproportionate amount. So like it's the system as a whole that, that there is certainly racism involved and there's been racism involved that has led to an, a, a non-normal amount of black people in the poverty camp. But the everyday police on the street, I don't think is 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 the problem. And where I get upset is the focus on the end user, meaning the cop. They're always focusing on the police that are racist and all that instead of focusing on the people actually passing the unjust laws, so on and so forth. Uh, and, and, and so the, the focus is always on the wrong things to actually make any sort of real change. So, so if I were to drill one layer uh, down into this, though, and ask the question, 
when these police officers go through the academy and they understand what the laws are that are on the books and they're signing up for a job where it is their duty to enforce these unjust laws, is being a police officer still a noble profession for, for people to pursue considering the job that they're being asked to do? I often, I'm not sure if you're directing at me or everybody, but I mean, I, I have in the last several years come to a position that like me personally, I would not be a police officer. I'm not one. So I know it's easy to say that from the outside looking in. Um, but um, in terms of the things that direct my morals and where I'm at, I know that I could not be a police officer unless specifically I was like the sheriff of, 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 a, of a county where I could make the rules in terms of what we do. Um, so like in my mind, it, it is, it would be personally against my morals um, unless I was doing it and just simply refused to enforce things that I knew were unjust, but we all know where that leads you. Right. Um, and so you're, you're basically either have a job or, or you don't. So, you know, in my mind, I, I find it to be personally immoral. I mean, Morality is a hard thing to argue because it's subjective from person to person. Um, but if you look at bad, let's call them bad laws, but laws that are no one's getting hurt. It's a, a vice crime or something like that. Um, my interactions with police is they know exactly they know these laws are bad because what I tell them is I say, you know, the law is bad. So why are you enforcing it? You have you can you have a discretion to not enforce the law. You have a lot. Right? Like, if you don't like the laws, vote in better politicians. As soon as they say that, they're admitting to me that they know that the laws are bad. So it's like I mean, it, they know that they're enforcing bad laws. But it is really hard to get somebody to understand your point when their livelihood depends on it. Let me give you an example. I don't mean to interrupt, but my father was a police officer back in the day. Okay. Um, and he made a felony arrest for marijuana possession. And this is back when marijuana was a felony, just mere possession of it. And the person ended up going to prison for almost 20 years. Okay. For marijuana possession, not dis distribution, anything. And my dad turned in his badge because of that because he knew it was wrong and he, he stopped being a police officer because of that absolute injustice. So it, people, you know, he gave up his livelihood. I mean, that's what, what he was doing. He went to school. He did the whole thing. His whole career is based on that, but he made the decision that it was not, it was not right. So people can do it. Kevin, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, a couple a couple points were just coming to mind and, you know, kind of covering this whole conversation. And I think it's flowing very nicely uh, with the different perspectives here. Um, you know, one of the things I look at is when you talk about systemic racism, uh, I was 21 years old, I believe, when I started my career in corrections. Uh, I grew up in corrections, really, uh, to, to say 42 when I retired. I grew up amongst folks that uh, I didn't have a lot of contact with. Uh, people of different race and cultures and economics. Uh, I do agree with Peter. Not a lot of rich people are incarcerated. That's just not really what happens. I mean, we could we could look at situations with the the famous names, the Kennedys or whatever. And unless there's a you know a smoking gun, typically uh, these are typically you know uh, slaps on the wrists for people with means. But you know, I was actually down in South Carolina this past weekend with a a bunch of friends and. I happen to be the only white guy in the crew uh, out of uh, many. Uh, and we got into some really great conversations. Some in, the, in this group were formerly incarcerated folks. Uh, some of them were, I, I won't get into some of their names, but they were probably associated with some of the biggest entertainers in the rap industry in the history of this country. And I got to hear some stories about some really impactful things. And it, it, it came up, uh, to, it actually came up in, in this conversation that we're having with us this weekend and one of the things we talked about, and I, I said this to the folks when we were talking, and they kind of really started to understand where I was coming from. We focus so much on broken systems in front of us, and I, I realize we have to fix what's in front of us. But Peter made a point about it earlier. Uh, the, the, the wealth of our society is really the defining moment. Now, you can go to West Virginia and find very, very poor uh, white folks. You can go to uh, the Bronx and find very, very poor uh, Haitian folks or pick, pick a, pick a, whoever you want. Right. 
But in reality, in this country, our policymakers back in the 30s and the 40s, uh, they actually set laws in place for what they were calling in 1937 or 36 fair housing. Read the book from Ralstein. Dr. Ralstein wrote about the making of Ferguson. Now, I'm not here and getting into the political side of that. The riots, I, I clearly think the officer was in his rights to defend himself that day. That's not the issue. What I'm saying is the making of Ferguson was taking a look at how government took systematic, you want to use the word appropriately, systematically took white families out of ghettos and allowed them to move to the suburbs. The book actually focuses on a Chicago suburb that created wealth through the opportunity of home purchasing. But it did not do that for the same folks uh, of color, uh, of other races. In fact, they said, we're going to build you these beautiful things, uh, you know, called sky, these skyscrapers, these big, these big apartment buildings. In fact, my friend uh, I was with this weekend said he was on the 20th floor growing up with five people in his apartment with his mom and dad. And that's probably why he never went to jail. And we talked about that, too. A father was in the household. But because of that situation, his family stayed in New York in these projects. They weren't given the same opportunity as people. So government in our country, they hold it. They hold a lot more to, to, the, to this than anything. And by the way, I don't even want to get into it, whether it's Democrats, or Republicans, because they all sucked and they all were part of this problem over the years. How do we fix it? Well, we've got to give people reasons to appreciate where they live. They have to they have to love where they live in order to, to care about it. And these communities, unfortunately, have been generation after generation after generation of apathy. And we are apathetic. And all you know is I'm going to hear gunfire tonight. I'm going to I know I'm not going to get a job. I didn't graduate high school and maybe a lot of responsibility being ignored there. But at the end of the day, government over the country's history has created this problem. And now we have government trying to tell us how certain populations. Well, we've taken advantage of it. and maybe may, may truth to that. I'm sure that we could paint a picture of white privilege any way you want to do it. At the end of the day, though, and this group that I was with this weekend, we all agreed on one thing. Personal responsibility is what we really need to focus on. And we don't have this in this country. Personal responsibility is ignored by excuses of law. It's actually shunned. I mean, we're at a point, too, I think, like personal responsibility is racist. You know, I mean, it's like the idea that to have the you know, to the preposterous idea that you should be responsible for yourself is, is looked down upon by a lot of the people specifically kind of the more woke left. But I mean, that's, that's a huge, huge issue. And just like you said, the, the fathers in the home, I mean, that's all of these things in terms of the family unit that the, the stats are just there and it is what it is in terms of percentages. When you look at different races and everything and all of that plays a, a major part of it, but how many of how much of that is because like their father's in jail for drug charges or all of these other factors, you know, that, that led to that. Uh, certainly the government is involved in, you know, giving special privileges for single moms to get specific welfare uh, programs and things like that and encouraging them to be single versus married. I mean, there's a lot of factors, but yeah, I think we all can agree that structures of government are the problem. Um, and, and I think that anybody who is looking to have serious answers for these problems that is looking to the traditional red or blue is not going to get it there. And I think that's the, the major overarching point. Yeah, I will say that I grew up in the Bronx in a, an apartment building that would most people would probably consider to be a tenement. And there were five of us in a two bedroom, one bath. And yeah. as much as my dad had a lot of problems. Um, but I will say that my dad was a leash to keep me off the streets doing things that I actually wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And so I, I can, I have experience with this. I, the family being there, a mother and father is, yeah. And what's funny is you bring this up to libert some libertarians and anarchists and agorists they'll just be like oh well that's just that's just hierarchy that's just authority and screw that i mean i literally hear people say that and it's just like maybe i hope you grew up in the burbs and you know had a really easy i think you might have grew up in the burbs and had a really easy childhood because as somebody who had friends who friends from high school who were murdered 
in high school while I was still in high school. Yeah, it was it, it was nice having the nuclear and the extended family around that I could get sent off to grandma's house on the weekend. Mm-hmm. Such an important thing. Guys, I want to kind of just switch gears because we've got about 10 minutes left. Um, I would say we're switching to a rich people issue, but we all know that isn't true with civil asset forfeiture. There was a grandmother out there who, and I'm forgetting her name, I'm terrible with them. She, uh, her son was suspect, grandson was suspected of dealing drugs and she lost her home. Uh, civil asset forfeiture, do you think it's necessary? Do you think uh, we should get rid of it completely? What are your, what are your thoughts? I'll pass that to David. She, he was shaking his head already. Yeah, I mean, I think people that do, I, I mean, I think people should be able to physically defend themselves from that personally. Um, I mean, it's theft, plain and simple. Um, and I think a lot of these are, you know, the problem is most of these things are tied to unjust laws in the first place in terms of what they're being accused of. Um, you know, I, I think that it, it, starting with the, the, the aspect of what is illegal in the first place uh, and what should be illegal probably will solve that problem in and of itself. I mean, with the maybe rare exception of like a major white collar corruption type of case or something like that, where they're, you know, running a Ponzi scheme or something along those lines. Um, you know, I think that, that there's very little reason to do that outside of, you know, the, the laws that are already unjust in the first place that should be done away with. Um, but yeah, I would have, I wouldn't shed a tear for somebody defending themselves with the second amendment over that. Just is what it is. I think that I like the idea of criminal asset forfeiture. If somebody has been damaged. So if somebody, if that was stolen from someone else, taking that back and making sure that the person who it was stolen from is whole um, is important to me because I mean, I've had a car stolen out of my driveway. They didn't care. I mean, they, 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 they didn't care. You know, they're just filling out a report. And it's all, and I've had money taken out of like my bank account. I've had my bank account hacked. It's like, all you're doing is filling out a police report for the insurance. So, I mean, that's not real police work. I mean, it's just, I mean, anyone can do that. You don't have to, they don't have to send a uniform over your house. You could send anyone over to do that. But criminal asset forfeiture where somebody um, actually has stolen from somebody when that person is arrested or whatever, and um, if the person who it was stolen from can like immediately prove that's mine, they should immediately get that back. The police should be able to do whatever kind of investigation they need um, to um, figure out if their fingerprints, whatever, if money was, if parts were were sold to somebody else, everything. They can do that within a week, and people should be able to get their property back. But property sits in property sits in. Um, in rooms for, you know, it could be a decade, you know, while somebody's in prison awaiting a trial or something like that. I mean, it's just, it, there ne it needs to be more efficient, but it's a bureaucracy. So I'm sort of asking for, you know, to like meet the tooth fairy, you know, to, to see like an efficient bureaucracy. The, the problem is though that it's because the system is not designed to make people whole. It's designed to punish wrongdoers, right? Like kind of what I was talking about at the beginning, where if the system was actually designed to make people whole and to really provide true restitution, healing, and everything through the process, then that would be the, the main focus. But instead, it's all about crime conviction, putting people in jail. It's, it's, it's the system from the top down that is not geared towards helping you as the victim. It's about the government maintaining control and authority to punish people, so to deter other people from rising against the government. I mean, I, I think that's still comes back to the core of the problem. Kevin, what are your thoughts? Do away with it, modify it like Peter wants to, where are you headed on yeah. this one? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, and I think when you see it laws like this, uh, really when you go back to like the RICO Act in our country, where a lot of these laws uh, were purposely used because they couldn't beat, you know, uh, the system. They could, they, the folks were beating the system. So they looked to uh, enhance these new laws that actually created a little bit more 
opportunity for federal and state agencies to really get in there and uh, really, you know, really make an attempt to, to truly uh, squash these criminal enterprises. Now, did it go too far? Clearly, I think we can look at many cases where these types of opportunities for uh, law enforcement agencies, they went too far. Um, but I think overall, when you're focusing on those, and I, I guess maybe I'll get, I'll, I'll pair up with Peter, my my uh, my ball friend, uh, with the glasses like myself, and say, you know, I think you need a little bit of it, but you need to also a little sprinkle of common sense and and restructure how this works. But you know, I, I want to make it very clear. I, I mean, I know this is a very diverse panel, and I, I can tell there's most of us are probably going to agree on a six out of ten things here, and then there's going to be those few things we don't agree with. I just really am. A, I'm a real huge believer in law enforcement. I, I think it's an imperative and I'm not saying and making any accusation of anyone else not. I just think that we're trying to recreate something on a social uh, level versus a practical level. And I think we have to look at it from the practical point of view first and, and really empower law enforcement, not just to do their job, but to keep people from being arrested. And David, you touch upon that a lot as far as, you know, those, those opportunities. Those, I think those are learning moments. And I remember growing up in a small town here in Connecticut where my baseball coach was the cop. And when I was 16 years old, got caught with beer, you know, with my buddies, he was pouring the beer out while he was smacking us on the back of the head and telling us, you know, not just telling us to walk home, but, you know, telling us, you know, I'm going to talk to your parents about it. And I know we don't have that kind of luxury anymore, but I kind of think those are the ways that we can correct some of these, these really differences between law enforcement and communities. I, I have hope. And I think I want to ask this panel something. I know it's, it's coming to a, to a, to an end here. Do some of these reforms uh, to the panel, uh, do they also apply to every crime under the books? Because I'm a very. I think we lost them. Damn, that was that was okay, an opportunity. Not the only one. Well, that was a good opportunity. Kevin, if you can hear us at least. I think we're still here. I, I, can, you, can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, we got yeah, you now. We can hear you, not see you. Okay, it was right at that point where I was actually in the in the movie. That was the that was the that was the uh, the point in the movie when I was going to say my big speech. But my question is, do you feel that there's a, there's a major need for reform uh, with sex offender crimes in this country to this panel? Because you know what, uh, I think sometimes I have a hard time. I, I have a lot of folks right now that on some of our platforms we deal with, on, and thousands thousands of people across the country, a lot of folks are looking at this uh, this case with this young man being tried for the murders. And some folks are even myself being guilty of it. Well, he killed the pedof pedophile. And that's kind of a concept. Are we talking about reform even with regards to sex offender charges? I just like to ask the panel that question. I think one of the biggest problems I have is when I see somebody get sentenced, I wonder who came up with this, that this is this is the punishment for this infraction or this crime or actual crime. It, it's like my that's my question. It's like, OK, so remember, t I mean, do they still have 1020 life? Uh, in, I think they've done away in California, yeah. you mean? Well, I mean, they had 1020 life in Florida right. just right. 20 years ago. Um, right. OK, so I mean, what who came up with that? I mean, that's cookie cutter. There's Joe so Biden, much. New, Joe Biden so, came up with it. I bet Joe he Biden did. Yeah, there's so much nuance there to life. Why isn't there nuance to the criminal justice system as well. I mean, there are obviously people in jail who don't need to be in jail. And there are people walking the streets who need to be fed into a wood chipper. So, I mean, what do we, you know, what do we do here? I mean, it's, it, it's that, and that's another problem with bureaucracy. Bureaucracy tends to either make itself as complicated as possible so that it can keep its power going and seem to be, um, you're always fixing it. You always we have to have reform. We have to have reform, and that's on purpose. Or it's as simple as possible. Ten twenty life. There's so much more nuance to everything, and really, it's mm -hmm. if we brought things. I'll bring it down to this: if we brought things down to the local level and we concentrated on everything locally, we could have that nuance a lot easier. Yeah, in my mind, I, I I'm kind of a believer that I think that. Really, I think that there, we should have a much more restorative justice system that actually focuses on rehabilitating people much greater than punishing those people. But I also, so in my mind, 
I think that there should be much a lot more mercy, not that they get off the hook, but a much more lenient take in how we handle any first-time offender. It doesn't matter what you did, like no matter the crime. I'm not saying they get off scot-free. There's a punishment if you do, and especially serious crimes, there's serious punishment. But I think that for the first time, the, the, they need to be on a track to true re rehabilitation. So when you talk about sex offenders, all that, yes, I do think that leniency for everything across the board, no matter what it is they do, if it's serious, like a sex offense or murder or anything like that, there needs to be real punishment and real time spent and real rehabilitation. Where I have far less leniency is as these people become repeat offenders. And so I think, but I think we can stop that by having real restoration focus. If you have never been in trouble with the law and you do anything for the first time illegally, it's a totally different process, completely, almost a totally separate process altogether than if you are a repeat offender of anything. I think just having that as the focus will will change a lot. Let me squeeze one little last question in here before y'all go. Uh, the Republicans are throwing forward a bill that would uh, uh, federally decriminalize marijuana. I just wanted to ask this question without a whole lot of nuance, uh, just the panel's position on the difference between uh, do we want decriminalization or legalization of marijuana? And uh, just real quickly, like what, what, your, what are your thoughts on those, uh, those two options? Either one but I, it has to be done at the local level. I, it goes down to the local level, whatever the local level, whatever local wants to do. Um, but decrim or, I mean, there are some places where decrim is handled worse than legalization. There's some places where legalization is better than decriminalization. It's really how you define, how, how an area is defining it. But as long as it's on the local level, as long as it's down to the city and whatever town and everything like that, or, at the most to me, the county, um, then yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm for it, but also if the local county, if your local area doesn't want it, they should be able to say, no, it's not legal here. You cannot, you, you can't, I disagree. You can't force Liberty on people who don't want it. That's called a dictatorship. I disagree. That that's the tyranny ruling over people because it's a right that they have. Just because 51% of people say we want to take your stuff or do something bad to you doesn't mean that they have a right to do that. But on another, I mean, just sticking with the topic specifically, like and I had a conversation with. I agree uh, with you 100%. So let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to okay. outlaw the teaching of communism in this country right now, because okay. if you teach what happens, we, we haven't we've let it be taught for 100 years sure. openly. It's taken over the colleges and now it's infested the government. Why did we allow that to be done in this country? That's exactly the road you're going down. And if you want to go down that road, you're going to go down my road too. And we're going to throw commies out of helicopters if they don't want, if they, if they won't stop teaching communism. Okay. Well, sticking with the question, um, like in terms of this, I've had this conversation. I asked a, a person who is a uh, narcotics detective in my area here. And I asked her, she does a lot of stuff specifically with the DEA and everything. And I, I asked her point blank, hey, in terms of most of the violent crime and all the like the, the murder and a lot of the bad things that happen in our crime, how much of that is in some way, shape or form, whether directly, indirectly, whatever, related to drug trafficking? And she's like, oh, all of it. And I was like, OK, so in my mind, like we, we think we have all these crimes in our in our country and all these bad things happen. But the reality is, is that almost all of this people don't we don't have an epidemic of random people getting gunned down on our street. We have a lot of drug. Crime. And so to me, decriminalization of drugs only stops users from being arrested. It does nothing to address the consistent drug trade problem that is the cause of most of these problems in our country. I would much rather have black people in their inner city neighborhood having a, a legal business where they're selling drugs that are controlled, that people know they're going to be safe, so on and so forth, that if people are choosing to use them, that they can get them and know that they're safe, know they're pure, so on and so forth, and, and completely do away with the drug business being in the hands of gangs and cartels. To me, the only way to really solve the problem of drugs, which is the violence that surrounds it, not the drug use itself. It's the violence that's the problem. The only way we get rid of that is through true legalization and ma making it an industry. 
with that, does, it, uh, does that come with uh, government involvement when you're saying they're safe? Are we asking the FDA to do that? I mean, I think I think from a true libertarian standpoint, I mean, you, you don't have to have the government involvement, but I think that I'd be willing to meet in the middle on that. You know what I mean? Like if 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 we had to have a like a bureau that manages that and similar to how they do alcohol, I think that's a step in the right direction. I'm not saying that's my ideal situation, but I think I would rather have that than like what we currently have with the, the DEA and everything else. Um I think it'd be a good compromise in the middle. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll chime in, too, if you don't mind me offering a few. You know, one of my favorite interviews is with, the, you might have heard of him, uh, Ted Nugent. And uh, Ted's favorite thing is saying is, you know, the, leave it to the federal government. They want to they control my guns, my smoke, and what I drink. And, you know, he's kind of got a really good point to that extent. And when you look at the prohibition model in our country, uh, obviously, um, the Kennedys, uh, who designed the, the father, Joe, there was a really big uh, proponent behind the, the, the designing of the prohibition model. Uh, and you were able to see the taxation. Right. So, listen, I, you said um, somebody at the federal level, Republicans are pushing this bill forward of decriminalizing. You know, you know why that is. Right. You do. You know why that is. Twenty twenty two is an election. Yeah, Votes. Yeah. yeah. The, the biggest. Listen, I'm, I'm a Republican. I'm not afraid of saying who I am. I stand, but I'm also someone that sells the truth. And look, in 2022, one of the things that happened under the last six years in this country, or at least five years, is we built the biggest number of independents, never voted before. Uh, I don't want to call them conservatives because I don't think they are. They're almost like falling under this new hybrid terror, you know, sort of term. They align with Republicans, but that that population of blue collar people in this country. They don't want laws that, that, that affect them from recreational use. They don't want to be told what they can or can't do. And I think this is a good way of passing the buck. Uh, I do think it should be. I think locals should make decisions. Uh, I think this is a really important topic because some communities don't want to have recreational marijuana dispensaries in their towns. They should have a right uh, to say that. That's their community. That's how it should work. But I also think we shouldn't be putting people in prison for something that grows out of the ground. Uh, I had a 40-acre hemp farm up here in Connecticut. Best experience in my life. I'm a conservative Republican. I voted no against legalizing marijuana in Connecticut when I was in the state house. Why? Because we didn't have roadside testing. And I didn't want to see people being put into a system that didn't have answers to that. Uh, that's Those things are being solved as we speak. I think it's time for this country to realize it's uh, it's not for taxes. It's for the purposes of the benefit of medical, uh, nutraceutical, I've seen it with my own eyes. I've witnessed children live a better life because they have access to these types of alternative medicines. And so I think it's time for us to approach that. But again, it needs to be local, in my opinion. And yes, decriminalize it. Don't lock people up for marijuana. The story that David shared about his dad, that I've, I've witnessed that story myself. I've seen fathers incarcerated with their kids over marijuana. That's not how it should be. Well, guys, I just wanted to thank you. We need to jump off here. I got a kiddo yelling at me, but this was great. Um, a lot of solution-based stuff. That's the goal of the Liberty Roundtables. Talk about solutions, not sit here and argue. He said, she said, Republican, Democrat, um, even though we're all different here. So thank you guys so much for coming on. Um, do you guys have any events coming up, podcasts that you want to plug real quick? I'll go last. Go ahead, go ahead Kevin. Okay, yeah, well, so my show is Monday through Friday. Uh, you can check us out on all the platforms, The Kevin Allen Show. Uh, but I'm actually more, uh, I'm, I, we actually made a small announcement yesterday. My uh, my future partner and I were going to be doing a side project called Odd Couples. Odd Couples based on, you know, the, the term. Two very uniquely different people uh, that are going to be interviewing folks across the country uh, and talking about these very topics about how, race and economics and uh how we fix the problems from within uh without actually letting government try to tell us how to fix it so interested about that so be paying attention for the odd couple coming out soon love it yeah i mean in terms of plugs i would just uh encourage everybody to check out our youtube channel so it's just anti-establishment media we've got a lot of things coming out there soon we just recently launched our podcast which has been getting a couple thousand downloads per episode right off the rip which is really awesome um, and then, you know, obviously the YouTube is a separate thing, but that's been going well. So anti-establishment media, we've got a lot of stuff on there. I try to do one or two episodes a week. 
Um, yeah, so I just encourage you guys to check us out, and I really appreciate the uh, the support of just subscribing to our channel and following us along. I do the Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast three episodes a week, and um, the managing editor at Libertarian Institute with Scott Horton, Sheldon Richmond, Kyle Anzalone, Keith Knight, Patrick McFarlane, and um, Libertarian articles and um, long form and blog form all five days a week. So check it out. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. I'm going to let y'all go, and then me and Sean will finish this up. Thanks so Thanks, much. Thanks, Okay, we are next on December 13th. Do you have an idea of who we're having on? I know we had a few maybes. I've got, I don't want to say any names because I want to get them confirmed, but there's some pretty exciting names that are interested in coming on. Awesome. Um, and if you uh, message either muddied waters media or the liberty roundtable page if you guys want to come on democrat republican we can definitely uh, get y'all on here but until next time be free